Welcome to another episode of Eric's Perspective. Uh, joining me today is the multidisciplinary artist and activist, Yerne Gabon. Yerne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. This has been a long one coming, but hey, I'm here. <laughs> exactly. And when you say long one coming, I can, uh, right behind me is a piece you did, I think, in 2007, and you had dedicated it to my wife's uh, grandmother, I think. Yeah. Uh, do you recall, you recall that piece? Hail the woman. Hail the woman, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, really, looking at it now, it takes me back so far in terms of where I was as an artist, what I was thinking about, and the kind of stories I want to tell, you know, um, just looking at the eagle as the bird and also looking at the wings and cubism, the language and, and all that stuff came after, but just looking at what I was looking at to create that piece gives it more meaning to me now. Uh, excellent. I, that's always an interesting thing for me to, to talk to someone uh, years after they look, uh, completed a piece and yeah. now they're looking at it uh, in the present time. And that's 2007, so that's what, 15 or so years ago. So. Um, is it seven or it's earlier? It's 2002. Is it 2002? Yeah, was it two or seven? Oh, wait, 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 seven, it's seven, I see it. On yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, it's seven. Actually, yeah, it's seven. So that actually takes me into how we got to know each other actually through Kelly, as I recall, my wife. And uh, she tells me that she... Uh, curated for a commercial gallery called Backstreet Gallery, a show of your work, and that was your first commercial uh, exhibition. Is that true? Well, this I, I tell you the story because I remember it. Kelly, I think Kelly wanted to so much. Um, she, you know, Kelly is a big fan of Paul Van Bloom. Yes. And he was her professor. She left me this job to curate. I've, I have no, I, you know, no ex no experience into the art world and um it was an exhibition called the feminine edge and kelly had to go to greece or something she was working with blue point and oh, yes. bathing suits and pr and lots yeah. of activity and she just literally handed me that project and i was too happy to take it and it was young it was about a diverse young group of women in Los Angeles, women artists, who were making work. Um, I think it was Leila Lee, um, Myra Gandhi, Nzuji Maglasha. Um, there was one other person, but it had an Asian woman in it. It had a, a woman of color. In, it was women of color, and I think there was another a Caucasian woman of Liz Van Bloom. Ah. So that was Paul's daughter, right? That was Paul's daughter. Yeah. And so I was busy going around to... Studios, doing studio visit, really playing a role. Studio visit, looking at artists' work, talking to them about their process. And I'm thinking to myself, I have to represent because, she, you know, she just literally handed me this project. You know, the, the guy the guy was Mr. Bodacious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I remember that time. And she yeah. gave me the whole outline. It's like, <laughs> bam, that's it. And it becomes a project. It really was an amazing experience for me because it was a, my first foray into being a curator. Oh. I have not like really taking on, take it take take it on, in any great um, deal after that. But I will be curating a major exhibition this year. I won't talk much on it, but it's going to be here in Los Angeles. Well, we'll touch on that a little bit later. Yeah, uh, to yes. find out where you wh what's happening in the future. For yeah, sure. so 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 that's kind of just where we first went into the art business um, with your wife. Yeah, 
Kelly um, giving me that position to curate this uh, project on women artists, female artists in Los Angeles and what they were doing. So it was Feminine Edge. Feminine Edge, excellent, excellent. <laughs> so uh, just for a moment, just so that the listeners and viewers can get a little acquainted with you, yeah. where were you born and raised? I was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and I was raised in Jamaica um, until I was about 20, 20, 20, I start really moving out internationally. But Kingston and Jamaica is my birthplace, and that's where I was raised. I see. And do you still have family there? They're all in New York. Oh, okay. Everybody, <laughs> everybody moved out. New York, Miami, London, that's kind of where... Spread out, in other words. That's so the Jamaican diaspora, we move to places like those because of opportunity, of course. I see. Yeah. And so... Um, when I introduced you, I said you were a multidisciplinary uh, yeah. artist and so forth. And so it's not just visual arts, but your playwright, the uh, music, the whole bit you've done, performance art. What was the first branch of the arts that uh, you delved into? Or, or is it accurate to put it that way? I, I think it's very accurate to, to look at the first, the first area of art that really got me to this place. And it was poetry. Poetry. Yeah, because I loved words, and I love to um, to dream, to imagine, and you can do that with words. You can you can create a word and immediately have a visual to go with it, and that becomes very easy to me because growing up, I was one of those kids who were taught to be silent, but my silent was only in your presence as an adult. When I'm outside of that talk to trees, I would listen to the wind, I would listen to the birds, I would look at the sway of the grass, you know, everything meant something to me, and it becomes so poetic, and even though I was one of those kids who learned to read very late, I love books, and I love words, and I love looking at it, and I create an imaginary world for myself, and that becomes into my later years into music, because, you know, it's like as a kid, you learn to sing, by just making sounds mm -hmm. and you play act by responding to imaginary thoughts and stuff. So that's kind of where my early seeds came from, going into theater and music. I see. So are you still engaged in poetry? Uh, of course. Probably something you'll never uh, give up, I'm guessing. No, no, no. Poetry comes in every single body of work that I make. Start with a word. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, if it's a painting, for example, it, its life could start out as a, as a poem, for example. They're all seeds of oh. poetry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's how I think. You know, I mean, I, 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 I see everything um, very poetic. So even if it's a sculpture, even though it's not moving, what I do see is the word that create that sculpture. It might start with a color, then it goes into the material. Then I would write a few lines about it. Then that helps me to create the work to its fullest. Oh, I see. But poetry is always a seed. You know, I mean, I, I, I tell people I come from theater and music. You know, I mean, theater has, is one of the greatest disciplines for any artist. It has everything. It has, when you say theater, you're thinking music, you're thinking dance. You're thinking the writing of words and bringing those words into fusion, creating life and telling stories. It's storytelling. And all artwork for me is theatrical. 
if you look at the piece that you're looking behind you, mm-hmm. it's a conceptual bird. In the head is in one direction, the woman head is in the other direction, and she's holding on to a wing and covering her breasts. And her position is very much like a dance. Look at the movement, mm-hmm. and the way I, I I frame the work with the the color on it. Just looking back at it right now, even the costuming her neck. You know, you could tell it's something like looked like a, a set of pearls. But they, yeah, yeah, it does they, look know, like that. Exactly. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, uh, I I look at this now, and I I I, I <laughs> see no difference in how I create now. I just see an evolution ah, of what that really is. Yeah, <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, speaking of visual arts, so at what point do you recall um, starting doing visual arts? I mean, you said you got started with poetry first, and then things kind of moved from there. But do you recall about? Of uh, course. I have the one of those memories. I think I can remember a lot of things since I was about three years old. Oh, fantastic! I remember first the first time I drew something. I remember looking at the Bible, and I was very taken by the stories, even though they were scary at times. You know, I mean, there was going to be rolling fire nonstop, and the sky is going to be open, and there's going to be flood if you don't listen. All the things, all the fear that you could ever conjure came out of that experience of the Bible. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> well, yeah, you think about it. Floods and fire. Yeah, and <laughs> you're going to be burning forever. You're going to be poked with a fork. There is a man with a tail and his eyes are fire at you and all that right. kind of stuff. The devil. Right. And then these amazing white angels with beautiful wings and flowing hair. And I would look at those things in my quiet time and just look through the Bible as if trying to understand not realizing that what I was doing is literally infusing into me storytelling. I get it from the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember one story which stayed with me, and it was about fish, the five fish and... No, the five loaves, the two fish and five loaves of bread. Okay. Do you know this whole story? I know it roughly. Okay, yeah. I think every Christian would know the story um, and how Jesus would feed a multitude of people, and I would think about what two fish looks like, and what uh, what two five loaves of bread and two fish would look like. And I wanted to draw a fish, and I drew the number eight, and I put a dot, a period in the eye of one part of the eight, and that for me was the fish. Hmm. And I that was my first really remembering of drawing anything. About how old were you then? I I, I must have been about. Four or five. Okay. I must have been about four or five. I, because I'm placing myself where I was. Sure. I was in um with my grandmother in a, a district called Salt Spring. Coincidentally, I'm making work in salt now. Salt Spring. <laughs> I, in, I, I like to talk about that. Later yeah, about yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. In Jamaica. And uh, it's something about going to church every Saturday and looking at the Bible and Really, the, the the need to feel like I need to do everything right or else this is going to happen to me and trying to understand it, not knowing how to really read it, but when it was read to me, the way they, the stories were told were very fearful. But I would, you know, I like to eat. I still do. Um, and I would think about the fish idea and just think about what a multitude, multitude of people would look like and what this would do so I would I drew I start drawing these fish <laughs> and then I would leave them in different parts of the Bible that was my first time literally drawing anything 
And then when I was about seven, I went to a, I moved to my grandfather in another part of Jamaica, and that part was called Welcome District. <laughs> yes, and in Welcome District, it was a place where they have a little village school, and the little village school I would be, and now become the school's artist. So they would take me to the post office to when we do field trips to draw, you know, I mean, like people at the post office and they would take me to the market. Whenever there's a field trip, I would be going with the school and I would be the, become the school's artist. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And so uh, when did you start taking uh, any kind of art classes, whether it's music or, or anything? When did that begin? Um, that, that... Uh, so going to that little school in Jamaica, they have what they call JCDC, which is a cultural um, program throughout the country. And kids would participate in all areas of the arts. And it's a big festival. I dream of this. You know, I mean, I dream of doing the f- going from one school to the next and compete like all the schools in Huntington Beach would compete. And then the best school would be represented at a semi-finals. Uh, then there is a national. Then you go to the major city. Then it's on TV and all that kind of stuff. It's a big deal, yeah. I started that when I was nine, you oh, know what wow. I mean? And I was doing, I wasn't doing the drawings that time, but I was doing theater, you know what I mean? My first play was called Three Drummer Boys. And I would sing and I would dance and I had a mother and I would play act and all that kind of stuff. And I was about nine or 10. And then I went on to um, secondary school, high school, where I now compete with the big dogs and then it would be like, you know, you win medals and I would become a gold medalist and a silver medalist and I start winning medals. And then my poems become, it was works of other artists what we're doing. And it was interesting because these poems are out of Africa. You know, I mean, at 14, oh. I wrote a play about Steve Biko at 14. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how, how did you hear about uh, Stephen Biko? We were told these things in schools in Jamaica. Oh. We knew about South Africa. I'm getting goosebumps right now because... I wrote this play at 14. I just went to South Africa um, a few weeks ago. And I stood in those places and it was emotional because I was telling my friends in South Africa that I wrote plays about South Africa when I was 14 years old. I learned about the works of Frank Obino Parks and all these great writers who were writing and and talking about Africa in Jamaica. Mm. You know what I mean? So... I had one of the richest experiences, I think, culturally. I was going to say, uh, that's a very great opportunity to, oh yeah, I'm at grinning, such a young age, right? To, I'm uh, grinning right now because <laughs> I recognize the importance of that little island. You know, I mean, of course, you all know about Mali and stuff, but, you know, I mean, ports like Louise Bennett Coverley. You know, I mean, this woman who take languages and take it all the way to the Royal Academy. And, and she was one of our mothers, great mothers of poetry. Hmm. I love this woman's work. Because she spoke the language in the native tongue, that really give you a sense of a people and a value. And when you say the native tongue, which tongue is that? Patwa. Ah. Gyal run go wash the jester pat, catch up the fire fred, tell loose send some seasoning. Miss Mary Turkey dead. The turkey wake up hearty and was strolling about the place when a man kiet half starving dog just buck up face to face. <laughs> and all she's saying, girl, please go and wash the cooking pot and make the fire. Fred, she calls the name. 
and gather some seasoning because Miss Married Turkey is dead. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, you know, you come from seas like that, or, you know, I mean, you might know of Muta Baruka. Free man, I sing songs of free man. Free mother, my mother chained to me, chained to them. Whipped her because she cried about them whipping my father. She's a slave, he the slave. Then I would arise at the sun, nearly arise, working away my life. No name, no name. I knew no name. <laughs> I come from these people, these giants, Mutabaruka, Louise Bennett Coverley, Longston Hughes, um, Claude McKay. I just feel great. I'm so rich. <laughs> well, and you're, you're helping us to feel the same way by sharing. I yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah. I'm sure the listeners and viewers will yeah, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, because so, that actually anticipated a question I had, like uh, who, who are some of the poets that you uh, admire and were influenced by, and you've just told us. Brother, let me tell you something. <laughs> when I was 14, I did a Muta Baruka poem called I the Slave. And Muta Baruka, I know you're going to be seeing this. I so adore you. I cannot wait to work with you. I really cannot wait to work with you again. And then when I was 23 years old, I got kicked out of theater school because I couldn't pay. Hmm. And I was singing in hotels and doing poems, trying to make ends meet. So I couldn't. And by the way, is this in the United States or are you? Is this Jamaica. Jamaica. Okay. Oh, Jamaica. Jamaica, Jamaica. And by the way, the School of Drama, through Earl Warner Foundation, we raised a great deal of money in 2019 and donated to that school for scholarship for children, thanks to CCH and a ton of other folks who came down to Jamaica and supported me on that lecture and fundraiser for students who were in similar position like myself, kicked out because we couldn't pay. Because uh, to me, that's a, that's a tragedy to be it, kicked out because you yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, it was, it was sad. But the interesting part about that experience, the day they kicked me out and I was walking on, out on the, the um, leaving the school with my belongings, I walked into a group of filmmakers who were looking for students at the drama school to work in this movie. The movie was Sankofa. Oh, wow. Haile Garima. It's now on Netflix. Not Netflix. Yeah, it's Netflix. Ha Hava DuVernay just did a whole thing with Haile, honoring Haile here in Los Angeles. Okay, so I was leaving the campus that day, and um, I think a couple of months earlier, I won a major talent show in Jamaica as a singer and a poet with a poem called Cocaine, based on what was happening with Jamaicans and the co cocaine epidemic, and I wrote a poem about it, and I won this, it's like American Idol in Jamaica at the time. Oh. You get to travel, and you get all, a lot of press on, it, on the piece, and I did a piece called Cocaine. So now the school thinks... I am I'm a big thing, and I, I, I should be sent off on my way. So they kicked me out. So I'm walking out of the, um, the school, and I ran into these people. We're looking for people to work on the movie. And I said, I'm available. I just got kicked out of school, and I'll do anything. They said, well, what can you do? I said, I can do makeup, special effects. I opened my book because the piece I did, I, I did a dramatization, theatrical makeup to show, you know, theatrically, how cocaine would um, ruin somebody's life. Mm -hmm. Of course, not being a researcher and having knowledge, full knowledge of cocaine, 
<laughs> I further later on that you could look perfectly fine and be taking cocaine and be, you know, messed up. <laughs> so they were like, okay, we'll take this and we'll show it to Haile Garima. And they showed it to Haile Garima. And um, that night I get a phone call. We would like to take you with us. And I get really goosebumps about this because not only was I able to work on this movie as the first Jamaican to head a special effects department and the youngest, I was also, my cohort and my co-worker on this movie was Kerry James Marshall. Oh my goodness. Kerry was the art director. No kidding. And before, when Kerry had to leave early, Kerry made me his personal assistant to finish up what was left on the movie Sankofa. So that was uh, maybe 30 years ago, 28, 29 years ago (laughs) and stuff. It's been a bit, but I will say this much that... um, I don't think there's any mistake in life. I think journeys are meant to take for reasons. And sometimes we might be disappointed, but every road leads to someplace. There's well, no dead ends. I'm glad to hear that because when you first said you got kicked out of school, I was thinking, gee whiz, that's horrible. And then this opportunity opened itself up. and Brother, let me tell you, <laughs> when I was kicked out, of course, I was devastated. Of course, because anybody would. I when I wanted to so much go on to be uh, have my craft as an actor as a musician music school didn't kick me out music school I finished my course at music school but drama school was my passion I could do so much there I was doing so much I understood how to write my plays I understood how to construct costume I understood all these things that you get in theater school was available in there and oh you have to do music and movements right so you get dance and all that kind of stuff so to throw me out of that and deny me that at such a very tender age and and i say tender tender in terms of development um in your craft was not was not something that i i was expecting because i thought i was committed and i was good but it was a decision that was made and i left and i i just knew that there was going to be something, and I walked right into Haile Grima and Sankofa people, and that started my career for many years working as a makeup artist. I see. And um, with that, I still did music. I still acted. I was in plays. You know, I mean, I was played in London. I was then. I went into fashion. I opened for Lucky Dubey in Nice at the Mida Music Festival. Um, it, 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 it. I, I. School was great. But when they kick me out, they kick me into a whole nother part. My life becomes a global craziness of just all the things I love to do. Fantastic. Yeah. Like a flood of opportunity there. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I, I cannot begin to tell you all the great things came out of that. School is the great things because I went back. But at that time, I think that it was one of the worst things just in an instant happened to me but outside of that i was able to write and tour my first play um at 22 or 23 22 or 23 somewhere there i don't remember all the ages now but you know i mean um but you know it was it was in tour to san francisco and using um the works of people like marcus garvey inside the play you know i mean the music of mali and and, and that kind of stuff, and and, and, and and touring it in the sense that I raised the money, I get the connection going, I, I connected with a group called Global, Global Cultural Exchange, Cultural Exchange, 
I raised the money. I got the airline together. I got the sponsors. I scouted the high school students that I needed. I directed the piece. I hired the choreographer. I got the costume, and we toured. I was about twenty, twenty-one or twenty-two when I did that. Wow! You know, what I mean, um, so That's remarkable. Yeah, there's no reason that you can't really, you know, do what you need to do where you are. Much like where you where you are. So what was the play about? I called it the culture bust, like a bust, B-U-S, and a bust as a B-U-S-T, a play on words. And it was highlighting um, movements and dance from Africa. It was um, words of Marcus Garvey. Um, and I don't remember the rest of the script, but what I did was do a compilation of the things that I was taught in my country about empowerment and showed that to young students, young people, and people in general in San Francisco. And what was the reception like? Oh, well, we had conversation, and outside of that, I was able to invite a bunch of young students from San Francisco to Jamaica to participate in a program that we did at JCDC, which the students came from San Francisco. They were ages from 16 until 19, somewhere there, and they came to Jamaica as a cultural exchange. And so outside of that play, we brought students to Jamaica from San Francisco. And they, was able, they were able to work with me in the cultural aspect. So they, they, they made costume, they toured around the country, they participated in the festivals. They were able to see the things that sustained us and how we celebrate our, our blackness and how we celebrate who we are and our African heritage. Mm-hmm. And for them, a lot of times... I think I still have a video of them literally crying. They've never experienced being a place that is so empowered. Sounds yeah. like a transformative experience for them. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so it's 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 been one of those things that I've been working globally and bringing people together and planting seeds like this as long as I can remember. Wow, that's excellent. Hey, so uh, I know that. It seems like not too long ago, uh, it, tell me in terms of the time frame, you took up the cause of albino folks. Uh, albinism. Uh, albinism. People with albinism. Yes. So how, what got you interested in that? I'm curious. So um, I came to Los Angeles to pursue, I was in London working, working a lot in Western Europe as well, fashion, music, and theater, and radio, and all that stuff. And I came to Los Angeles to pursue my acting career, career in film and television. And um, pretty soon I realized that my journey was going to take a sharp turn because as, as much as I thought I was prepared, I thought preparedness is good, but you, you have that readiness and lived experience that has to be lived for you to finally know where you are, to measure, you know, where you are in life, period. Mm-hmm. And that I was experiencing while I was here. I'm going to tell you about albinism, but I'm telling you what, a little bit about how we got there. Yeah, sure. I went through a period where whatever money I made in fashion, music, film, I took it and I stopped writing my own plays, and I wrote a play literally almost semi-self-biographical called Portrait of a Poet. 
And Kelly bought a bunch of tickets back then and support and brought her friends. And <laughs> I kind of told a story using a director, uh, Sheree Adams, Richard Gant was in the play, Perez Arino, Marquise. Uh, it was really, it was at the Ivar. Sheree uh, Lofton, uh, co-executive producer, um, and myself. And I acted, I sing, I wrote. Alexander Alexandrioni, who writes for people like Whitney and Bobby, was my music person. I got a team of people who worked in film, television, and, and, and they are very acclaimed in their field mm -hmm. to put this play together. I put the play together, and then I couldn't tour the play because the actors were local, and who wasn't working in TV just couldn't take off and come back that easy. Uh, I see. I went into a very dark spiral moment. It was very quick, but it was a realization. I wanted to disappear, and school was the next best thing that I could have gone, where nobody knew what I did, what I was about. I was just another student on a campus. Oh, okay. I went to LACC. And um, to get some prereq because I wanted to go to university, but I couldn't go at the time when without having certain prereqs, right? Went to LACC, got some things, business taken care of there. Had a great mentor like Lamont Westmoulin was my mentor and friend, and there's quite a few more people there that you know Tony Clark, amazing mentors in so many ways that helped me get to a place where I can figure how I was going to foray into the scholarly world now. So I'm out of the business. I'm not auditioning anymore. None of that stuff. I'm quietly a student going to school and learning and doing stuff. Okay. Then it was time for university to make the transfer. And um, where was I going to go? Of course, USC was my first um, pick. And there was uh, some other places that I thought of. But at the time, I... I just wanted to kind of just get on with it and get it over with. That's what I felt. Mm -hmm. I couldn't pass math to save my life. So oh, so you had to take all of the prerequisites and stuff, even though it's not art related. Right? I, this, is, this, is, this is crazy, but this is a real story <laughs> here. You know, I was in South Africa and someone was telling me to tell this shadow story, the story that inspired the story. Yeah. You're now getting the story that inspired the story. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> um, I couldn't pass it, and I kind of was about to give up. And I said to, um, I was looking at galleries to show the work, because now I start, I made work in my house, my little apartment. When you say work, you're talking about visual art. Visual. That piece was made in that, in that place, and it goes back to, the, back to this work. No kidding. Yeah, I, I, I was making these work. In my, I had a friend, Lorraine Fields, who was an amazing mentor and friend. We're chatting. <laughs> and keeping my, my frame and keeping my head on. And I was trying to not get depressed to a point where I, I cannot lift myself up. And she said to me, well, you said you know how to draw and paint. Maybe you should just create some work and do it in your space. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. And I did the work in the apartment. And of course, I had an, a gallery in my, my house, in my apartment. And I was selling the work. Put a little tag on it and sit on my, in my dining area, run my little desk and pretend it was a gallery. Oh, walk through if you need anything. Anything, talk to you. You can call me as if I'm in a big old space. And then that really was the seed 
of really what led me to understand how I was going to frame work with a knowledge and not only aesthetic, but understanding to kind of learn what it really is that visual artists do outside of make work. Mm-hmm. Um, so school gets in there and I'm now on to USC and um, so you passed math. I passed math and I passed math with the help of a very dear friend who told me when I told her I was not going to do it. I don't think I need it. I will just continue working the way I'm working and I was going to figure it out. CCH. CCH. Ah, hey, thank yeah, you. We're talking about CCH. Pounder, Back to CCH. By the way. Uh, <laughs> my very dear friend and, and mentor in several ways. And she, she told me, she says, you don't want to regret it. I will cover all the math tutoring you need. I will even bring you food to your house. Wow. And all you have to do is just take math that one semester. I thought about it for a while. And first I, I fought it and I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And she told me one thing, never look a gifted horse in the mouth. <laughs> I go home and Good I, advice. <laughs> yeah, I go home and I figure that out for a bit. And I thought, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I hired me a math tutor. And one semester I took the math. I went from failing to 80s and 90s. And even though USC had denied me because I didn't have that math, but accepted me on other areas, I called them up. I said, why was I denied? They said, you didn't have that math requirement. I said, no, I have it. They said, well, where is it? I said, I'm walking my grade cards on. And that's how I got into USC. So that's a wonderful story, by the way. So you literally walked over to the USC I walked, campus and handed over your math grades. My grade cards, because they denied me. They sent me a denial letter, and I, I was like, "Well, what what grounds am I denied?" Of course, I know it was the math, but I ask anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and that, when I went to USC, now I no longer wanted to just make art. I wanted to make work that spoke to um, an awareness. Um, activism and become more than just aesthetically pleasing. I see. And so now I had a, I had a, um, a goal in mind. I had a desire and it was going to be something that I wanted to do. And now I'm not going for grades. I'm going for a broader mission. And I used that first um, semester to go through all the little things that, not little things, but all the prereqs that need to get me to that place. And when it was time for me to frame what I wanted it was albinism. I was going to do something that would have have a very greater impact than just learning or getting knowledge and understanding. And that's how we got to albinism. But how, what specifically about albinism attracted you to that? Well, back to my childhood. When I was a kid, people with albinism would normally be shunned. And I saw it for myself as a child growing up in the deep countryside of Jamaica where um, they would be seen as a nobody. You know, you would stone some houses, of some people, and they would have to come out only at night. And they'd be, now I understood that the day was because of the sun and also the fear of being ridiculed and right. all that kind of stuff. And then I learned more about later on about yellow man been born and left to die in a pile of garbage and that kind of stuff. And I wanted to make a work that spoke to that kind of awareness. It's, it's, it's crazy because I, I'm, all, I'm now reliving the experience of what that is. 
So while I was at USC, um, I, I quickly um, became a student with good grades and I was awarded a McNair Fellowship. And yeah, a McNair Fellowship. Fantastic. And it was for first gen. I'm, I'm the first, I'm first generation. Um, um, they call them first gen to have gone to college um, in my family. So I felt like a lot of responsibility there, but I also felt a big responsibility to use this moment to do something great. And it was the Albinism Project. And um, the McNair would not, would not fund me going to Africa because quickly I was researching. I started researching in 2009 when I was, before I went to USC because I knew that I wanted my education not just to be around grades or book but it would be about how to strategize and how to build narrative or how to be strong and how to create, when I say strong, not physical strength, but strong in terms of my argument. You know, if you make an argument, you've got to defend it, right? Right. So it was very important for me to have this going with, I didn't tell them that this was my mission. I, because, you know, I was like, you, you get there and everyone wants to teach you something because you're taking these classes. So now I'm in, and this project is the project I am going to use. So McNair is usually geared towards a PhD. They prep you, so you have a PhD mentor, and they didn't know what to do with me. Now I want to study albinism, so they put me in the area of sociology hmm. with a PhD candidate as my mentor. And I was like, okay, fine, well... When they said, well, well, we could study albinism in films like The Matrix and here in the U.S. And I was like, I want to go to Africa because there's a problem. In Tanzania, they were killing people with albinism. Babies were, limbs were being chopped off. I saw the, the um, fingers being severed. I saw the, the news with... A very now a very dear friend of mine, Vicky Etatema. Vicky, I, I applaud you. I cannot wait to work with you on your book and, and all the things that you, 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 you meant to me in that whole period of really forming my opinion deeper than just learning about yellow man in my country and people being shunned. But people in Africa were being killed, in, particularly in, in, in um, Tanzania at the time for, for being born with albinism. Why, why were they killing them? Um, there was a myth and superstition that was really a misunderstanding, a great misunderstanding of who they were, what they were about. And uh, people felt they had powers, and to harness those powers, they need to be killed. And, uh, in, you know, I, I, I wrote on this, the catalog and exhibition on it, but there's so much that I had to deal with, and now my scholarly journey becomes even more a bigger mission. So of course with USC not not really endorsing me going to Africa, I went back to my friend again, CCH, who was my number one collector and number one friend. And I said to her, USC won't fund this. I want to go. And the first thing she said, let's fundraise. And that, my brother, I think I may send you a photo on that in the in in one of the things where you see a bunch of students and myself with USC in CC's house. Okay. She left me her house, and with about eight or nine students, including um, Aaron Christopher, who is now a curator at the Hammer, 
um, was my my um, cohort at USC, and um, I, I called Erin because she's still working in the art field, and all the other great um, collaborators of mine. We took over that house and we create what was to me one of the most amazing fundraiser that we have ever done for any project and I was on my way to Tanzania. <laughs> Not only Tanzania, I went to London, I went to Jamaica, I went to New York uh, and, 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 um, and Tanzania and, and East Africa and create the project that was the exhibition Visibly Invisible oh. at the California African American Museum. A catalog was, came from that and over 50 works were made for that exhibition. Not only that, Based on that exhibition, I was invited to the United Nations to testify as an artist about my findings and what I was doing. So I get a chance not only that, but also to work with scientists, Dr. Maury Brilliant, who was part of my, my, my team to understand the gene variances of what albinism was. So not only we looked at people, we looked at plant life, we looked at animal and mammals, we looked at all living things that has the variances that causes albinism. So albinism is not unique to human beings. No, no, it's 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 in everything that's living. But what was it like to speak before the United Nations? That must have been pretty awe-inspiring. Well, that came out of Vicky Etatema and Peter Ash from Under the Same Sun. They came down to see the exhibition directly, you know, from Vancouver. And um, there is um, another amazing woman um oh my god please don't let me mess her name up um rebecca kammer dr kammer she saw it and she says no 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 the team needs to see it so we had the the people from um from the american albinism society we had peter asham under the same sun and i went to vancouver to also raise money for this and it became a project that took my life over for quite a number of years, lobbying um, at the United Nations, um, raising money, bringing awareness, working with the girls, Vicky, uh, uh, Bibiana and Tindy, who now lives in Los Angeles, the African Millennium Foundation, OMG. I have to thank Malena Root, who was my number one, who says, between her and Sisi, you've never been to East Africa before. You don't know the food. You don't know the people. You don't know the politics. This is a hot subject. You have to be careful going in. We're going to find people to align you with going into. I'm going to tell you about the UN to align you with going into Tanzania. So I registered at the University of Dar es Salaam as a student. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, I didn't go undercover, but I was still learning. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty much yet. Uh, I got you. Um, so your cover was this being a student. Yeah, I was a student, and my professor was Dr. Professor Mapunda. And um, he was in the anthropology department, and great guy. And Von Bloom, Paul Von Bloom was one of my advisors here, and Stephen Ross at USC. So I went across campus, USC and USC, to have my advisors. I pretty much had it down pat, and then I was on my way to Tanzania for eight weeks to... Research, do qualitative research and look at villages, look at people, look at behavior, look at the culture, you know, speak to doctors, speak to politicians, you name it, I was in Tanzania doing that work. And I could only do those work as a student because at the time there was a big thing about 
how the media was portraying Tanzania. So at one point I was, I was, um, I, was, I think I could have been in trouble. I was on a bus traveling across town and I was taking pictures and the police came on the bus and my interpreter at the time and my host told me, he's another student from University of Dar es Salaam, that I was, they were, the police was called on the bus because of my investigating, taking pictures and looking out the window. And they didn't like you taking photographs. Or well, were, they, were they aware of you? I don't, a, I don't know if they were aware, but it, it wasn't anything illegal, but it, was, it could have been questionable because, you know, I mean, had they recognized that I was a student and I was also learning and I stuff, as, uh, that got me fine and okay. And but so the government itself was sensitive to portrayals that are bringing in, in the media about Tanzania itself. About Tanzania, especially albinism, because, you know, I mean, Vicky herself was... Her life was threatened. She was living, when she was in Tanzania, her, her, she was living with um, guards and electric fence. And no kidding. So, you know, I got mean. Got to that point. Yeah, it was, no, it was serious. And I myself was living, the hotel I was living in, you know, I mean, it was like each time I go out, you know, I mean, I have to be, even though I go, go to school and stuff, it, it was, it, to get the story and to get the experience was the risk I took not knowing what the end result would be, and it could have been going another way. And I went as the person on the team without bringing anybody because I couldn't, I couldn't guarantee anyone's safety. So when the team came down and saw the work at the California African American Museum, um, they were incredibly impressed, and they felt like this represent everything. You know, I mean that, that they were advocating for the awareness. It was all there and. CCH had a work in the piece I invited her as well called If I Were, where she literally made herself being a woman with albinism in the actual work. And it was a chair, and then it was videos of her being a woman with albinism and also herself as part of the exhibition. And then after that, um, Peter Ash, who was lobbying uh, under the same sun, and Dr. Maury Brilliant, who was speaking at the UN, invited me to speak at the United Nations as part of the team to bring this argument as an artist of what my finding is and my experiences were. And that for me was surreal, you know what I mean? It's like, there's few moments in, moments in my life where I could not see coming, even though, you know what I mean, as a kid, I've always aspired for great things, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm a hardworking person. Um, but the UN... I never thought I would have a seat at the United Nations to testify and testify on something like this. Of course. So the, 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 I'm, having, I'm trying to relive the moment a little bit. The <laughs> day before we get there, I was incredibly nervous because I'm trying to figure it out. I, I took one of my, um, at the time, Lois Samuels, uh, out of Jamaica, my my publicist who understood the story way back, and I invited her, and she was in New York. I said, "You have to come to the UN with me," and um, she was taking notes, you know, like my note taker behind, and then, you know, we we got into our seats, and the mic is right there, and it was just really, really, really surreal to me, you know, knowing that I am testifying on a bill that's going to be passed. Oh my God, just looking back at that moment, you know, it's like one moment that I, I, I have never really fully digested that moment. I can imagine. What it meant. And to have Ambassador, the late Yusef Boribari, who got blow up in a mission, 
he was the one who said to me, I applaud you on your great work. Don't stop doing it. We need people like you. You know, may his soul rest in peace because he's one of those advocates who made his life mission about social activism and made the visibility of the invisible. And he was the spearhead of that bill. So anywhere in the world, anyone who knows Yusuf uh, Boribari, ambassador of Somalia, please tell him and his family, we thank him for his great work because he was the one who spearheaded that bill. And one of the reasons why I was at the United Nation um, to testify. And the bill, I take it, passed. The bill passed June 13, um, International Albinism Day. And um, they acknowledge it here in Los Angeles because I got something from the mayor as well. But to be part of that history for me with one of my first work, returning to school and having the help of a community was just wonderful. The artists like uh, Betty Saar, uh, Artist Lane, Michael Messingberg, Chooks, um, Lamont Westmoreland. Uh, there's so many other artists who gave their work to fund me to bring this realization to reality and have this research done and have the work made and have me go to Africa and travel around. It's And, and King Yellowman who supported um, and Aaron Cristobal and all the team. The names are too much to list, but you all know who yourselves and stuff, but I just now reliving that moment, just thank, thanking all those people for making that work. Um, Melina Root from the African Millennium Foundation, making that work one of my most um, prized um, experience of my life. How long ago was that, by the way? We started, I started first looking at in 2009, and then 2012, I was in Tanzania and started traveling around. Um, 2009, I was at USC. Um, and 11, 11, 12 was the exhibition. Um, and I think I graduated that time. 13, 14 was the exhibition, somewhere there. Um, and then I worked many years after that, still lobbying, because the African Millennium Foundation with CCH and myself, because we became this group. There were two girls I met when I was in East Africa, and it was Bibiana and Busha and Tindi. Well, like my play daughters, and um, I promised that I would get Bibiana a new leg, not realizing, that's why I said I don't make promises, I just do the things that I have to do, that I had to hold myself accountable for that. Um, and your wife did actually donate somewhere in there, Kelly, to help with flying them someplace. Um, these two girls, bringing them to America, getting the leg well they now live here and they are still part of my live work Bibiana they go to school here and they're young ladies now and um, I still every now and then speak on this but it's an ongoing understanding still in many parts of Africa and many parts of the diaspora about people born with albinism which is uh, no pigment in the skin, and it's a gene variant, it's a recessive genes caused by two parents. There is still a great deal of um, misunderstanding about albinism in people. Well, I was going to ask you, given the sensitivity of the Tanzanian government, did, was there any backlash after uh, the bill was passed, for example? No, no, there was no, there, I don't think there's no back because it was passed by many other ambassadors that signed on to the bill at the United Nations. 
um, they're, they educate, it's, the education has is, is been more amplified there now. So it's, it's not as horrible as it was back then. But, you know, in late years, they start desecrating graves and looking for bodies and that kind of stuff. You know, I mean. Sad to hear. Yeah, but re-education is always, and this is from an artist that I also do have great admiration for and was one of the supporters of this project was Raul de la Sota. Um, re-education is always something that we have to be very much um, encourage because it might miss this then it might get this generation might get it but the next might miss it so you have to re-educate all the time right so albinism is kind of one of those things that you have to continually have conversation around you know this uh, albinism especially in people not realizing like even in the redwood forest there is trees that are with albinism mm. you know what i mean they have avid in mammals they've got whales crocodiles you name it it's right. all there so so yeah well shifting gears for a second um i know you just got back from africa am i right about that and you're getting ready to go again yeah um what are you up to now well i'm always up to something <laughs> um I just got back from Botswana and South Africa. Um, loved South Africa. Um, loved Botswana. And in, 20, in 2016, I first went to Senegal, West Africa. Um, and went back in 2017. And pretty much um, was in, taken by um, Salt Lake. Salt Lake, the pink salt, Black Rose and start researching that whole community and the salt and that kind of stuff. And in 2018, I was invited um, by the cultural department um, of Senegal to um, the opening and presenting my work, representing part of the group of the English-speaking diaspora at the Museum of Black Civilization in Dakar, Senegal. And I, I worked uh, as well during that time back on the research. And then later on, I was um, invited uh, through an application process by the BNL Commission to the Dakar BNL on the project SALT. Oh. So uh, for a number of years, I've been looking at um, Salt as it relates to ecological and social climate change. So I'm looking at the properties. I'm looking at the industry. I'm looking both socially and ecologically. Um, high salinity solution of um, that before it gets to the salt is where you would have any life dwarfed three times smaller, and uh, the people that works in the lake and the the business around what that looks like as a a commodity and the history of it. So not only ecologically and socially as it relates to climate change, but it goes way back when salt was used for money, currency, to fight war, to take down countries, that kind of stuff, right? So that becomes super fascinating with me and with me. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. For a number of years, I've just been delving myself. I've got other stuff that I'm looking at, but the salt is the number one exhibition 
that I have been like really a body of work that I've been looking at. So that is going to be in the 2020 this year, 2022, because we had COVID 2020. We didn't have it. The Biennale. So I'm that, heading back. That's, to in, that's in Senegal. In Senegal, in Dakar, Senegal. And um, I feel very strongly that there is more further research to the findings. And um, I have been for a number of years thinking about Botswana. Um, mainly because of a bird, the rolling breasted roller. And now I have got into looking at the Okavango Delta and the Makhadikhadi salt flats in um, Nata in Botswana. And um, the Okavango Delta is Maun, which is um, um, out of Habaroni in Botswana. So I think for anything else, the salt project is would be a continuation in Botswana because the Makhadi Hadi you can see from space. And there is a lot of climate change issues happening within this region that requires investigation and questions. So now my focus, once I am finished with the Biennale, it's heading to Southern Africa to look at what that looks like, not only for people, but ecologically for animals. So my next project is set to be in one of the next project, research projects. So there's other projects that's going in between after the BNL works that I've been making. But major research, much like the SALT project, is going to be Botswana. And is that where you're heading back to uh, later? I think you said next month or something. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm heading to Dakar for the BNL. Uh, oh, that's the next trip. Yeah, yeah, to Dakar for the Biennale. And then um, I'm doing the Biennale in Dakar, um, May, June, May 19, June 21st. And then I have a residency I will complete in Ghana, which I started here where I sent we, we sent 113 children to summer school through the arts. Uh, I raised money with a number of amazing people and mentors. So it's an art mentor program with in Kumasi, Ghana, with the um, Dawn Sutherland Bridge to Africa connection uh, last year's summer. I will wrap that whole thing up. But then there is um, a project that I'm doing on slavery and the Atlantic slave trade and religion between Ghana and um, looking at Francophone and um, Anglophone country. And that takes me into a residency later on in the year back in West Africa. Uh, particular Senegal at the Museum of, of African Diaspora, Black Civilization in um, Dakar. That's January 23, January, February 23. And then there's some other things down the line that I'm taking, thinking of doing. And I hope 23, 24 is when I move my project to um, Botswana. Oh, excellent. And when you say move the project, do you mean? As an exhibition, or are you planning to actually move yourself too? Uh, yeah, I have to be there because one of the things about Botswana, I have to be able to see the seasons. Um, so I'm thinking of a full year. It's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a multi-country project. I have to see the seasons in which the in the place in which I'm researching. Because the thing about salt, you know, I mean, I've grown salt and harvest salt here in my own studio, um, is the salt in the winter is very powdery. It needs sun. It needs a lot of sun and the salinity. 
and it looks like diamond. I don't have it to show you here, but it looks like like really like diamond. The, you the, mean like facets and that kind. Yeah, of like facets. Crystal is the crystallization happens within the sun and the high sun illusion, right? So when it's when it's the weather is cold and it doesn't get enough sun, it it, it looks like it's it looks like snow. It's very powdery. I see. So um, I um, I recognize that in my research, and you get a different level of um, of things happening in the salinity of the solution, and so that is for the Makatikati salt um, sodium ponds in Botswana, but for the Okavanga Delta, um, the different seasons give you different different life. The delta would be just all dried, and everything would possible not everything but most things will die mm. you know within that within the dry season and then the rain comes, and then the water comes from Namibia, Zambia um, the Congo, and they all come down into the the delta and disappear mm. and then life just 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 blossom just blossom and that fascinates me, man. Have you ever seen a uh, a a a a must just like the, the the must under a microscope. How beautiful that thing looks! I have not, but oh I, I I should. I, I I will plan to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I'm fascinated by what 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 like molecules of water or the different crystals could look like. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that research process. So I'm so far theming up with the Botswana University the Okavango Research Institute that is a part of Botswana University, Poitavango, which is in the Mahun um, region. Um, I'm also teaming up with um, Anne Galif- Galifer's residency in Botswana and uh, the Botswana uh, Mahun Secondary School. So there's a lot of social social interest that's going to be happening while I'm doing my research. It's not like I show up in Botswana and I'm off doing my research in the Okavanga and the Salt Flats. Not like that. I'm going to be in the community making a difference as well. Oh, that's fa- that's fantastic. I, I can easily imagine that, given yeah. your activism and your concern about uh, various aspects of society and community, which is um, admirable, for sure. Thank you, brother. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. And so after all the research, the output of that will be, will it be visual arts? Will it be probably a, a multidisciplinary uh, output as well, I'm guessing, right? It's or, going to be all of the things that encompasses my discipline, I've seen it in many other the, the other work. The Visible and Visible project, I had song, I had poetry, I have, um, I've, I have art making, object making involved. I cannot see anything. Africa is such a poetic place. Just, just showing up in Africa is poetic in its sense. Just looking at the way the sun set or the shifting shadows or the trees, the birds... You've seen things in Africa that makes you just want to weep because you realize this is Eden, man. This is serious, okay? <laughs> this is really serious and stuff. Africa makes me weep all the time, and it's not a sadness to weep. It's a weep because it's an awareness. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Africa, by the way, I think it's easy to overlook the fact it's enormity. The continent itself. Let me tell you, I don't is, think that's gigantic. I don't think that, I don't think that, that drawing that they did is accurate. Because I would be flying, it takes you sometimes two, three days to get to some places, brother. Yeah, right. I understand. And you're flying over vast areas, and, and it's one country. In one country, okay, the Makhadikhadi salt flats is bigger than Switzerland. This is one, 
this is the pond that I'm going to be. Yeah. It can be seen from space. This is in one country. This is a salt pond, okay? Right. The Okavango itself, when you look at it from the plane, your heart just leap out of your stomach because you cannot believe that this place exists in such wondrous form. Yeah. Everything about Africa for me, Africa's poetry is still been written. Well, I got to tell you, you're making me want to get a ticket, man. I'm, I got, I've got, I've been to Africa before. I've been to the Ivory Coast, and I've been to Egypt, and I've been to uh, Senegal, but I've not. Where in uh, Senegal have you been? Uh, I was in Dakar. Oh, you've been to Dakar. Yeah. What were you doing in Dakar, brother? Well, I was, I was trying to understand what, what I was looking at. You know, I was just traveling. I was being a tourist and learning and a student of, of uh, where uh, our, a lot of our ancestors came from. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little thing about difference like when i always go to africa i always i'm not here as a tourist because tourists get to see tourist things well that's I, true that's and have true. and have a tourist experience right and I, I love the honesty my mother wants to be a tourist when she goes to africa that's it i never want to be a tourist because you know in a hotel they tell you oh yeah, yeah, yeah you you will get the food here this is food like you like but to get the real food you have to be with the real people and the real people are are not considered to be the tourists. So those experiences that you get and you will live outside of a tourist package are the experiences that will shape your life in a whole nother different way. Well, I must say, I did actually scratch a little bit under the surface in Ivory Coast. So we didn't, we didn't just stick around. I okay, good, 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 good. I don't think a man of your caliber and with the arts and all that stuff would want to do the no, tourist, tourist thing. No, I wouldn't yeah. want to limit myself yeah. just to yeah. uh, just to the hotels and the basically European experience part of Africa. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you haven't been to South Africa yet? I have not been to South Africa yet. Okay, well, hopefully um, you probably will either bring the show to Botswana and um or something or whatever it is but you have to make it to southern africa um for sure you have to make it to southern africa you, you at least a few more countries no uh, not only a few i want to i want to experience a lot more than just a few got you <laughs> got you brother well listen i want to thank you so much Yerne. you have uh, definitely delighted us and uh, uh, enlightened us with uh, with your sharing your perspective thank you so much for being here i thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and yeah, um, I also will say this real quickly. I thank you for having me at your gallery. I can't remember how long that was. The first time I decided I wanted to get value on my work when I was going to have my first show, your wife took my work down to you. And um, we stood there. You looked at some things. Yeah, that could go for that price. I could go for that price. And <laughs> thank you so much for that welcoming me into making the time, making the time into a very informative and very mm, early, early years when ideas were being formed, the very seed of this germ of being a visual artist. Thank you for taking time to see me. Thank ah, you, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> All right, listen, everyone, please... Um, uh, thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of Eric's Perspective, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you. Thanks, Gibbon. <laughs> <laughs>